This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today I'm talking with my old buddy from LA, Christopher Alice. Although he's gone about it pretty quietly, Christopher has been busy as hell for over a decade doing session touring and live work in multiple corners of the LA scene, including touring and recording with Dina Carter, Michael Naismith, and sessions for ABC, Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, Coca-Cola, and multiple feature films. We've recently welcomed Bayer Drums as a sponsor, so in this episode, you'll be hearing clips of our friend Mark Beckett playing a worship track with a Bayer 6.5x14 and a solo track with the snare drum of the week, a 7.5x13. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We would also appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers. It's all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. So as you'll hear, Christopher and I go back a bit. We had pretty regular hangs when I lived in L.A., and this felt exactly like one of those. Just as we did in person, we get to talking and follow some rabbits down some holes, so this is a bit of a long one, but he always has thoughtful and insightful and funny input on just about everything, so hope you dig it. Here's Christopher Alice. It has been, it's been too long. How are you? It has been, it, it has been, how long have you been in Atlanta now? Uh, like four and a half years. <sighs> That's so bonkers. Yeah. That's really, really bonkers to think a lot has happened. Yeah. <laughs> a lot has happened. Where, where do we start? <laughs> um, yeah, that's the, that's the, $64,000 question. Right. Um, well, you, you, you start. <laughs> I'm going to take, I'm going to take the pressure off of me. I'm still having my first cup of tea. Gotcha. Um, well, let's, yeah, let's just start with a, a little bit of, of background between you and I, like, I'm surprised it's, it's taken us this long to make this happen. Cause we hung out, on the regular when I lived in LA. Um, and, uh, since then, you know, it's, it's, uh, to, to my 
shame that we've sort of you know lost touch and not really talked much. Um, you came through Atlanta once or twice, and we weren't able to to hook up despite many texts back and forth. Um, but what's been going on since I left? <laughs> um, well, I guess that's kind of a twofold answer, really, in terms of the general kind of what's happening in Los Angeles. Very much the same, well, pre, <laughs> pre-March pre 10th-ish. Right. Um, same kind of thing, really, in terms of the different clubs. You know, it was the same kind of stuff, really. There were a decent number of gigs and sessions and, you know, all the stuff that we were all hustling. Right. Basically. Um, you know, and, you know, the, the unique kind of family that we drummers and percussionists are, you know, plenty of hangs at either Paquito Moss or Taco Zone or wherever the heck it <laughs> happens to be. And right. Busting everybody's chops and going to pro drum and, you know, buying stuff, even if you didn't need it because you just want to support the the shop or whatever. Sure. Um, so in terms of music, I think everything was going along at a, a fairly decent pace. Um, and I, I'm not trying to gloss over any politics of you know of gigging or this club or that club or whatever of, but I of just which think there is overall, much yeah and there always has been and there always will be yeah so i don't think that i don't think that there was much to complain about though <laughs> you know what's the easiest way to make a, a musician complain give them a gig right. so um i think Post-pandemic, though, and I know you got into this with Elizabeth in your conversation with her, um, there's an incredible amount of uncertainty and an incredible amount of just fear, I think, because um, you're not able to sustain a life on just this particular talent that you have and this love that you have for the arts in general. Mm -hmm. And... So I see a lot of people freaking out, still freaking <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult because we're all dealing with our own stuff as well. But I'm trying to, as much as I can, you know, reach out to people here and there, you know, make it a point every week, hit a few people, maybe yeah. hit the same people a, a bunch. Right. Um, just to check in and see what's going on. And I think that, when the artifice of gigs and this and that and all fall out of the way, then you're really like you're dropping into a particularly deep slot. And then you're really starting to talk about, so what's going on? Right. What's happening? Right. Um, and I think that uh, I'd like to think that that's been an enriching thing for, you know, for both sides, but, you know, ultimately if I'm able to feel like I hung up the phone and they sound a little bit better than they did when we started the conversation, Mm -hmm. that's, that's a huge win. Right. A huge win. Right. So, so you, you probably have some insight um, into, um, you know, like any, any one of us could talk about our, opinions or, or fears or, um, feelings about, 
you know, what the future of gigging is going to be, what the future of music is going to be. But since you've been reaching out to people, um, what would you say, like, is, is there an overarching sentiment, um, about that or are people kind of all over the road? Like some are super inspired and productive and some are in a hole of despair. Like what, <laughs> what is the, uh, what is the, the sentiment out there? I think it's a pretty wide swing. Ultimately, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people, and I'm certainly trying to be one of those people. Um, it's just like, well, okay, I'm not having to be in the car for three hours to get to a gig. So yeah. what am I going to do? Fine. Um, so, you know, part of it required an outlay of, of some bread, but you know, I'm, I've kind of revamped my my studio rig mm -hmm. and added some pretty nice stuff to it to be able to present the best quality sound I can in terms of recordings and all of that. Right. That's I think a lot of people, step. a lot of people, myself included, are in that same boat. Like, you know, we've used this time to scrape together whatever money we can, make whatever investment we can in our home rig because um, that's where it was going anyway, and that's sure as yeah. shit where it's going now. Um, yeah, for sure. So, do you do you find a lot of people are doing that? Um, I do see a lot of people doing that, but what's interesting is uh, <laughs> um. I'm not saying that you have to spend a ton of bread. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that at all, but I think that it's, uh, you know, you really need to think about the overall picture. You know, what are you trying to accomplish? Like what's your target market? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you're going out and spending a lot of bread, do you know how to use this stuff ahead of time or are you learning how to use this stuff as you go? I, I fall into the former. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sometimes that put me at a certain disadvantage hmm. because you're sitting here looking at all this stuff and getting a little bit uh, flummoxed <laughs> by uh, what's uh, as opposed to sitting down. It's like, okay, I, here's this, Here's this basic understanding I have of this concept, say mic placement, which I already knew. Right. Or, you know, you know, how am I tuning my drums differently in the studio than live? Right. Uh, what kind of room treatments am I dealing with? Uh, how do I need to mitigate outside noise? Is there a better time for me to do tracking or not? And um, you just can't, you know, call up Sweetwater and have like a truckload of stuff sent to you and just like, all right, here we go. And right. um, I, I think, I think I'm guilty of that when I first started all of this. Hmm. So if anything, this, um, you know, rather curious time that we live in has allowed me to kind of catch up a little bit. So I'm closer to parody with the gear that I have <laughs> than when I started. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of the new at the beginning of 2020 where right. i was just like oh i've got this stuff what am i going to do with it now i'm just like oh yeah this is what i do with it right right so and so when you when you say that do you mean that you had a bunch of gear that you did not know how to use 
or or that you had a bunch of gear that you you knew how to use all of it but that just presented too many options for you as to you know what you wanted to sort of pursue the former mm, yeah the former like i understand what a mic pre does i understand you know where the microphone should be in relation to the drum i know how to tune drums i right. own fortunately i own really really beautiful drums but it was more just like I'm overwhelmed by choice. Yeah. And, you know, as the year has progressed, what I've realized is if I give myself certain limitations, it's just like, you know, are you going to play an 18 piece drum kit or are you going to play a four piece drum kit? Right. And being, being presented with a limitation like that can be very, very freeing. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you have to make certain things work within a particular context. Yep. So um, I've settled on a hybrid setup where um, certain things I'm doing in the box, like EQing, for example, a lot of the EQing I'm doing in the box. Mm-hmm. But I've got nice mic pre's that the mics are actually hitting before they go into the interface. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a little bit more warmth, a little bit more punch there. Um, and you can and take it. I, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm I'm discovering like the the step before that, um, which is placement that you talked about. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. just starting to learn about how um, you know Mike like because before I I knew how to get kind of a basic decent sound using placement, but now I'm learning how to use placement to to actually EQ the sound before it hits the, um, the interface. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many relationships that you have to consider that you don't, when you're going into East West or Stag street or wherever it happened, or even to your buddy's, you know, home studio and he's really got it dialed in, you know, there's phase relationships that you have to consider and you know how important that is. There's, Mm -hmm. Well, I've got two different mic options for the bass drum. I can only use one. I really need to sit down and audition both of those to see where I'm going to get the most oomph mm-hmm. out of the mic in order to make that sound as, as good as it can be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, been, I've been messing around a lot with placement and adding certain mics to the kit taking certain mics away like i'm i'm experimenting with not using a hi-hat mic because Mm -hmm. i very rarely need it yeah like whenever i have been messing around with stuff i'm like well i'm hearing it all in the overheads i mean it it, i i literally if i back off the hi-hat fader you really can't tell if i crank the hi-hat fader you know past unity mm-hmm. then obviously i'm going to hear it and it, you know and it peaks down and it hits the red right it doesn't sound all that great so i'm like all right if i pull the hi-hat mic off huh that means i've got i can do a stereo room now as opposed to a mono room right or i can add yet a third mic onto the bass drum mm-hmm. because or 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 a third mic onto the snare drum. Right. You know, where you've got like a 57 and like a, you know, uh, like an audit, like a, uh, an M81. Right, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, you do you do the small condenser and then the 57. So, I mean, so now I'm like, oh, okay. I've got different options by taking away that mic and yeah. putting something else up that I'm, may I'm, be more beneficial. I'm going through this exact thing because I don't have a whole lot of mics. Um, but that, I mean, in, in, you know, in some ways, having a lot of mics presents you with a lot of options, obviously. But I'm finding, right, exactly. I'm finding that having fewer mics doesn't necessarily present me with fewer options. There's just a bunch of different ways to use this small amount of mics. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, since, you know, since it's the last one that I listened to, I'm thinking about Elizabeth Mm -hmm. where, you know, her headspace is very much the Glenn Johns kind of thing, which Mm -hmm. I love. I love that mic technique where if you have two large, you know, tube mics or condenser mics or, uh, or, or ribbon mics, you know, you get those set up, you put a mic on the kick, put a mic on the snare, and then you just adjust your playing. Because a lot of cats have talked about this in, um, in, in articles that I've read and in interviews that I've heard. Yeah. And I've heard it from different friends that we have in common. And, and it's like, mix yourself. Yeah. Like if you're listening in your headphones and you don't hear enough kick drum and it's a minimal mic technique, back off on everything or hit the kick a little bit harder within reason. Right. You know, balance yourself. And then the mics are going to hear exactly what it is that you're playing. Right. So if it sounds balanced in your ears, then chances are good. You're going to wind up getting a pretty decent sound hitting the mics as well. So, I mean, you can do a lot with very little. Again, the four piece drum kit, as opposed to, look, I love listening to Brian Blade, and I l- love listen, listening to, you know, you know Mike Mangini right. or Todd Zuckerman Neil Peart or, or whatever, yeah. Or, yeah, or Todd Zuckerman or whatever. Um, but I'm, I, I'm not, um, I'm not blown away by the amount of gear. Mm-hmm. I'm blown away by what's done with the gear. Yeah. And I wouldn't expect Brian Blade to go in with a big kit with Joni Mitchell or with Joshua Redman. Right. I wouldn't necessarily expect, you know, Todd Zuckerman to go in with a small drum kit with sticks. Mm-hmm. Not that he couldn't. Right. He totally could. It just, <laughs> it, 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 he totally, totally could. But idiomatically, it, it, it doesn't work for the music. Right. So that brings up another thing. It's like, you know, if you have a, a minimal miking technique, does it actually work for the music? Right. Right. Because if you're recording and you really need the isolation of each tom because you want to carve out certain frequencies or you know that they're going to do interesting stuff with the panning or the stereo separation of the kit in mm-hmm. order to achieve a particular goal. Um, do you need more mics or can you get away with less? Right. Right. So I, I think those are the, those are the kinds of things I've been starting to think about a lot too. It's really kind of, I think I've hit a point now where I'm really beginning to think much more holistically about the entire process. Hmm. And maybe that's just a, a convenient way of me not getting quite as much work done as I could be getting done on it because I'm thinking too much about everything, which is certainly a possibility. But 
I think those are important considerations when you are bifurcating yourself because now you're not only the drummer percussionist, but now you're the engineer. Yeah. And the go between between the, the producer or the artist or whatever. So it's like you have all these different hats that you have to wear within the same, uh, within the same general frame. Right. And that's a challenge for me. Like I've been finding that I'm, I'm spending so much, um, time, (laughs) time and energy figuring out this whole mic thing. Um, that a lot of times like it's, it's time to play and I'm like, Oh shit, I have to remember how to drum now. It's <laughs> you know, or you yeah. spend you spend so much I time take like, off my lab coat. Right, right. You spend so much time dialing in all these sounds and then you get ready to record and you're like, shit, I haven't even figured out like what I want to play on this track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um uh and in terms of the gear, like I um, I got a really good piece of advice from a buddy of mine when I was getting ready to buy my first interface. Um, and I was looking at the, the Scarlets and, you know, I, I have a few more mics now, but at the time I was doing uh, just kick snare and two overheads. Um, so I was thinking about getting a, a four channel Scarlet. And my buddy was like, that would that would be great. You would do great with that but you should get an eight channel so that you can have something to grow into the eight channel doesn't work any different than the four channel. It's the exact same machine. So, you know, spend a little bit more money and get something that you can grow into. And, um, you know, that, that you're not going to have to replace in six months or a year when you have a few more mics and you have a little bit more know-how. Are there any pieces of gear that, that you've taken that approach with? It's like, well, I, I don't need this thing's entire capability yet but I'm going to grow into it. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that with the interface, um, because I, I kind of went one, you know, I went one level beyond where I was like, yeah, eight's, eight's not going to cut it. <laughs> um, I need 16 mm-hmm. because even if I'm not using all 16, I've got them and I know how everything is functioning. So, okay, fine. So at, at the most, I'm running 12 right now, Mm -hmm. but I don't need to run all 12. I can just do four. Right. So, I mean, it's kind of similar to what your buddy was talking about. I realized that for the people that were hitting me up, they did want that isolation. They, they did want those individual tracks. So I might as well have a little bit more than I need and never use it and that's perfectly fine right as opposed to maxing out and not having something that i really really should have and um and not being able to offer it right so yeah i definitely went through something similar and then after you get your initial interface or after you get your initial set of mics or whatever then it's like okay well what's the logical upgrade right and that's a massive rabbit hole because you know i've got friends where they you know skewed the the interfaces with built-in mic pre's and compressors and they just have their you know their conversion box 
Right. And then they just have a whole huge rack of like 1084s or 1066s or whatever it happens to be. So they're literally, you know, there's their mic pre and EQ and they just have this rack of like 16 of them. I mean, literally hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars. Right worth a year but they've been doing it for a while right so or they were like well yeah my car is gonna my uh, my car will run for another couple of years <laughs> i'm just gonna I'm, I'm just gonna do this right um and and that's why i said i kind of have a hybrid setup where um i'm using 500 series units mm-hmm. so they're smaller and uh I'm getting the same kind of results as I would from an entire channel strip, mm-hmm. but I'm just kind of cherry picking different aspects that I want in a smaller package, which also allows me the um, the luxury of portability. Yeah, because yeah. I don't have a lot. Of, I don't. I mean, I, I your setup probably. In a spare bedroom, maybe in a solarium, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. So you're not dealing with a huge space like again East West or West Lake or something like that. Yeah. So I can't have a huge rack full of outboard gear. Right. I need to keep everything tight. Yeah. So these 500 series units and this kind of concept I have in my head allows for me to get a really really great sound but in a package that doesn't overwhelm the space right the space is already overwhelmed with stacks of drums and percussion stuff and all that other wonderfulness that that we do so right. um the other thing about all, sorry the, the other thing about all this gear that i'm finding out is that in addition to like knowing how the gear works and what it does um, it's not worth having unless you can really hear the difference. Like if you intellectually know how to mash the buttons and turn the knobs, that's one thing. But if your ears aren't trained to, you know, tell the difference and really use that stuff and shade all of those colors, um, you know, that, that makes the, the, the gear kind of moot as well. Have, have you found have you found out that you, like you're going through this process of your ears just like opening up more and more and more and then it's like I'm I'm finding that my my gear like the next logical piece of gear is driven by my ears. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I do think that's the case uh and it's often driven by what I'm not hearing. Mhm. I'm like, mm, you know, this is missing a little bit of detail. Mm-hmm. Like I could really be getting a little bit more detail out of the kick. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why I started getting, you know, kind of putting together my first rack of mic priest of, you know, like BAE primarily because uh, they're built like tanks yeah. and they just really, they sound great. And they're based on they're based on classic gear that is still around and still sought after. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, I like what I'm hearing whenever I use this stuff. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, 
And I'm like, well, okay. So that's why I started, you know, buying mic pre's and trying to figure out, well, okay, is, does it sound better on this drum or this drum? Hmm. Okay, it definitely sounds better on this drum. It sounds better on this mic on this drum. Great. Okay, I'm starting to kind of understand what possibilities my room actually has. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's that. That's great because, again, to your point, it is um, it is based on what you're hearing or what you're not hearing, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's you know, it's different. It's a very, very different way to think. Because again, you're not just thinking in terms of how am I going to bring this song to life? Like mm-hmm. what implements am I going to use in order to back up this singer songwriter really quietly? Now it's what mic or what mic pre or what plugin am I going to use to really kind of bring out the most out of this particular drum or this particular track that I just did in order to really kind of lift everything up a little bit. Right. So So you mentioned plugins. That's, that's um, one of the frontiers that I have not yet uh, breached. I'm still, I like, I'm working in logic. I'm working with the stuff in logic when it comes to compression, reverb, EQ, all that stuff. Like I, I have not purchased a single plugin yet. Um, so what was that process for you? Like what plugins are you turning to often and how did you sort of learn how to incorporate those into your process? Um, I asked a lot of questions. <laughs> and, of smart uh, people? And, <laughs> well, I mean, certainly smarter than me, um, which, you know, it doesn't take much. But Yes, it does. I Come on. That, I think that, um, again, I, I, I set what I did was I set a certain number of limitations for myself. I'm like, what do I really need? Like EQs. Okay, great. So what am I going to be able to get into that gives me the most bang for the buck? And even if I don't use certain of these things, again, it's like the extra channels right. or whatever. Even if I don't use everything, I know that it's there if I want to use it. Mm-hmm. And then after EQs, it's compression. You know, like how do I want to affect the sound that way? Mm-hmm. And then reverbs. Yeah. You know, those are the three things that I'm really, really looking for, or I was looking for when I got when I got the plugins. And it just, you know, it was it was one of these ridiculous kind of through audio deluxe or whatever. It's like, you know get 40% off this or that or whatever. And, you know, take an extra whatever. And I was like, Oh, okay, great. Right. So, um, a lot of people had told me about, uh, one of the waves bundles. Yeah. And I was like, well, okay, I'll start here. And they, they sound great. They sound great. I mean, it, during all this time, also what I did was I got a new laptop mm-hmm. for the studio as well. So, um, and that was interesting too, because I went from like, here's my home laptop where I've just got a ton of crap all over the place. And now here's this new laptop at the studio and it just has Logic, Ableton, the Waves plugins, and like my tune track stuff. Yeah. 
and it's just super clean. Yep. And there's no garbage and there's no, and I was just like, Oh, <laughs> right. It's pretty fast. Right. Right. <laughs> and all this other background crap isn't running. I was like, yeah, I like this. Yeah. That sounds great. I'm on this, I'm on this iMac desktop and, and there's, there's, there's a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> on this desktop and I'm not, you know, I'm not putting a huge burden on it when it comes to tracking. Um, but it's, it's a little bit of a mess right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I'm looking at my, at my home desktop and it's like, Oh, too much stuff, <laughs> too much clutter. Yeah. It looks like, it looks like my brain right now. <laughs> um, yeah. It, uh, there, there's a great story in uh, Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential, about like when he was on one of his first like, you know, line cook jobs and he had his, you know, every line cook has their station with their mise en place and their cutting board and, you know, you got your parsley and your shallots and all that stuff and they were in the middle of a service and his station was a mess and his chef came over and just placed his palm like flat on the cutting board and picked it up and it was just caked in like... <laughs> debris <laughs> from yeah. the station. And he told Bourdain, he was like, this is what your brain looks like right now. <laughs> and it's, I, I look at my desktop. I'm like, yeah, that that's what my brain looks like. Shit. Well, I, I mean, I kind of look at my entire existence sometimes. And I was just like, Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolute chaos. Yep. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> Perfect. I, I don't do like I, I should be, you know, I spend a lot of time in the kitchen and if the kitchen gets cluttered up and, and screwed that way, I can't deal with it. I have to bring the day to a screeching halt and, and just clean the kitchen to a point where I can think in there. And it makes, I'm, I'm suddenly wondering why I don't do that more often in here in my drum room. Um, because this room is often a lot more of a mess than the other places that I exist. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is interesting cause I definitely have a similar kind of thing because obviously one of the things that we bonded over was food and cooking and yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I, 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 I like a tidy kitchen, but I allow a lot of other aspects of my life to be, you know, like, a mess. <laughs> um, and I don't quite know what that is. I mean, I, 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 I don't think I want to psychologize it too terribly much. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that a lot of things for me in the past, especially around music uh, or the lack of doing it or the concern about it uh, has been fear-based for sure. Like yeah. you fear success. Yeah. Like if you are going for this thing that you really, really love and you really care about, well, what if you succeed? Oh, oh my God. What if you actually succeed at doing this thing that you've been thinking about since you were four years old? Right. And then there's imposter syndrome and, um, Oh yeah. You know, I suffer from that. Yeah. I mean, total charlatan. Yeah. Me too. I feel like a total charlatan all the time. Right. And I think I'm like, especially when it came to, um, getting my home tracking thing together. Um, I am inherently a lazy person and I knew that whenever I made the investment in even the first piece of gear, even the first couple little mics that that was in a way I was obligating myself to 
do some work, <laughs> you know, and spend yeah. some time learning some shit. And I think that's one of the reasons that I put it off so long because I kind of justified it. It's like, oh, I don't really have the time. I don't really have the money. It's like, no, no, no. You have a little bit of time. You have a little bit of money. What you're avoiding is the fucking work that yeah. that you're now going to obligate yourself to do by putting this stuff in the room. Yeah. And, you know, I, I de that definitely resonates with me as well. And what I started doing was I started looking at it as, you know, I'm acquiring a new set of skills. Yeah. This doesn't mean that I'm putting somebody out of business that can do it better than me. This simply means that I'm able to offer the thing that I do to people that can't afford the person who does it better than me. Right. Right. So if I invest in the best gear that I possibly can and I bring the rest of myself to the table in terms of, you know, asking the kinds of questions that I tend to ask of a songwriter, you know, who are some of the people that influence you? Um, what are you looking for in this particular track? How, you know, if this came on the radio, what would, what would you want to hear from the drums? Right. Um, what, or what, in, what story is this song telling? Yeah. Yeah. And in, in order to kind of get into that head space a little bit more, and then that's going to inform what I do behind the kit. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, it's a question of executing all of the technical stuff, you know, firing up the computer, making sure that, you know, none of the levels are peaking too high and do I need to adjust this mic pre or and how am I going to EQ this when I actually, you know, sit down to EQ it, all those different things as well. So, um, yeah, it's, and you talk about like yeah, you're you know you're offering a product that you know it you're you're, you're um, catering to clients who can't afford the people who do it better than you, right? And I think there, you know, that exists at at every level of the music industry. Um, yeah. and and it I I immediately thought of um you know, a, an analog in the live gigging world, because one of the age old debates is like, how much should gigs pay? How much should a bar gig pay? How much should a wedding gig pay? And, you know, for, for people like us who are established professionals who have been doing this for a long time, like there's a price point, but for people who yeah. are in college or like just out of high school, or like they want to get in on the gigging, gigging game too. And there's a place for them. Like just because, you know, they're like, they're, you know, coming in at the bottom of the ladder, they're earning a little bit of money, they're learning on the job and we can't expect their clients to pay them <laughs> what, what we expect to be paid. You know, we can't mm -hmm. expect those younger, um, less established musicians to demand what we would demand. It just doesn't work that way. And I think it's, I'm, I'm in the exact same position as you where like, there are a lot of guys with a lot more gear, a lot more experience, a lot more expertise. Um, and I'm not going to be able to charge what they charge. I can't do what they do yet, but I can get in um, at a price point where some clients are going to be like, I just need some drums. I don't need East West. I just need some fucking drums. The snare drum of the week is the 7.5 by 13 Bayer snare drum performed by Nashville session drummer 
Mark Beckett. That angel debate about what should this pay or what should that pay or whatever. Um, there are times where you kind of have to suck it up too. Sure. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd, I, I'd rather be playing than sitting around at home mm-hmm. most of the time. Most of the time. Now, there's, there's definitely a point where I'm just like, nah, I'm just going to hang out, put my, put my feet up and read, and read a book. Yeah. I don't really need, I, I don't need the aggravation that this gig is going to create <laughs> right? for, 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 for the very little, like the, like the aggravation to money ratio. Right. Um, you know, it's that, it's the, it's the, it's the three part equation, you know, yeah. is the music good? Is the hang good? Is the bread good? Right. As long as two of those, as long as those, as long as two of those variables are yep. satisfied, you're probably going to say yes if all three of those variables are satisfied and you're subbing you find out a way to get rid of the guy who's gig is. <laughs> and i'm kidding i'm kidding of course but you know they're 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 so rare where you you know have all of these things satisfied and you feel like you're lifted up from the experience of playing that particular thing and you're like wait i'm getting paid for this mm-hmm Okay, <laughs> sure, right, great. Um, it's man, it's so weird to talk about because it seems so abstract. I mean, even the recording and all of that stuff, it seems like such an abstract thing because immediately your mind starts to think live, mm-hmm. and well. When that happens again, what does that look like? Right. I, I, I honestly don't know. And that kind of gets back to uh, a question that you asked first off. Like, what does the landscape look like? And mm-hmm. I don't know what it's going to look like. I know that, um, I know that, that a bunch of places have shuttered their doors. Yeah. You know, I saw a picture of the Troubadour and it was all boarded up. God. And I don't know if that was boarded up from a safety perspective or if that was boarded up from a, all right, this place is done kind of perspective. Right. Um, Satellite's done, which which was a real heartbreaker. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there's talk about there's talk about the Viper room going away sooner rather than later because somebody bought the whole block and you're just, wow. Well, you know, in addition to the, I mean the, the, you know, conversation we were having about what should a gig pay, you know, that, that argument is as old as music. Um, but it, it is changed now. Um, and in in addition, in addition to like, is the music good? Is the hang good? Is the pay good? Now we got to consider, is it safe? And this is something that Beth and I got into, like, that's an added factor now that's going to be weighted against how much you're getting paid. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is, 
there's safety. There's even different layers of safety as well. Because yeah. I mean, if we're talking just in terms of, um, you know, the pandemic, you know, just your, your overall health, mm-hmm. safety. That's one thing. But some of the artists that I work with, you know, they've got stalkers. Mm. They've had, you know, they've had to put restraining orders and all that stuff in play. Yeah. And, and, and so, like, I'm doing, I'm doing an outdoor gig, you know, at a fair somewhere in the middle of America. My eyes, my eyes are, my head's always on a pivot. Yeah. My head is always on a pivot because I just don't know. Right. Right. And so I, I, I'm constantly making sure that, you know, I personally, and the artists know that I do this. I personally get with the security people. I'm like, I got the best, I got the best vantage point on stage. Mm -hmm. I'm four feet higher than everybody else. And, you know, I'm, I'm always on a pivot. So if I'm looking at you and I'm just, I don't care. Come up on the drum riser. I'll tell you if I'm seeing something weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the safety thing now is incredibly, it's incredibly just in your face. It's so prescient now. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I think there are no, there are no answers. Everybody has to come up with their own answers for what they're comfortable with, what they're willing to expose themselves to. Um, and you know, I'm starting to see more people out and about, um, playing gigs out there in the world. Um, not a, not a ton, but I'm, I'm seeing it starting to come back and, um, I've, I've learned that I'm definitely on the more cautious end of that spectrum. I have not played a live gig since March. Um, I've, I've done a couple, but they've been outside. mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's been a significant enough distance where I felt okay because I need to be really cautious. Right. So, um, that that brings in a whole other hosts uh, a whole other host of um, of things to consider things to think about because um, I have to be healthy right you know I mean obviously we all have to be healthy for ourselves but I mean as you well know I have to be healthy for you know for for my wife and for my mother-in-law as well mm-hmm. so, um, that has really kind of changed the way that I look at gigs a lot now in general. Yeah. Um, I had the opportunity to go and play with an artist up at jazz alley in Seattle for like two nights in mm-hmm. a row. And I was just like, no, yeah. no, yeah. you just can't do it. And we're, so we're all starting to be faced with these decisions um, about, uh, you know, what, like, what is the gig? Where is it? How long is it? Is it inside? Is it outside? Um, what assurances do we have that the crew is going to be safe, that the crew is going to be masked? Um, so there's, there's all of a sudden like a bunch more questions that we have to ask about every gig. Um, and, uh, are like, are you finding that one of the, one of the things that, um, 
Beth and I sort of arrived at was that the employers that you had before COVID hit, like you, you knew which employers were really going to have your back, mm-hmm. whether they were MDs or band leaders or um, promoters or, or whoever. Like there are some people um, who you know, like everything is going to be on the level taken care of. Um, mm-hmm. So are you finding that uh, that is also the case in terms of COVID? Like a lot of the people that you really trusted before uh, are coming through with the most trustworthy circumstances in during COVID? Um, I would say by and large, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in, when I think about, you know, when I think about my, you know, employers, you know, Dina Carter, Michael Nesmith, Peter Asher, mm-hmm. um, just looking at those three, right. They're on such a different level that, you know, those, um, those machinations are being dealt with by, you know, management offices and, and the, 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 the negotiations and everything that are happening are kind of, they don't have to worry about it. They've got their offices in place that are dealing with it and they know the parameters around which they're willing to function. Right. So by the time uh, those offers get to you, they have been thoroughly vetted. They've been vetted. Yeah. They've definitely been vetted. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's up to you to be like, okay, what's my comfort level based on that vetting process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, part of that vetting process is, you know, are people going to show? Sure. And, you know, and that's, I think that's one of the main questions that everybody's asking because, you know, you're, you're taking all the precautions that you can when you get on the plane. You got the mask and the sunglasses and the da, 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 and seats open, hopefully, or whatever. So it, getting there is okay. But once you get there, what what's being put in place? Mm-hmm. Now, again, you know, is the crew solid? Is the team solid? You know, all of these other things. Has there been uh, has have there been recent spikes? Right. You know, is it close to an area that has recent spikes? Are you in a primary, a secondary, or a tertiary market? I mean. You've got all these questions that need to be asked, and those are typically being asked by by whatever the management office happens mm-hmm. to be for for those. And then they're making the decisions from there. So if they're just like, mm, no, okay, right, right. And you mentioned the factor of like, is anybody going to show up to this thing? Are people coming to live music right now? Um, and you know, I, I think we all, um, it's, it's another factor of like, if everything is safe, if the money is right, if, if all the, um, uh, you know, indicators are that this is something I want to do, but then you, you sign up to do it and nobody shows uh, that's, I don't know. It's kind of a selfish factor. It's kind of like, I want to play for people. I don't want to play for, um, you know, a really sparse crowd of masked 
distanced people whose faces I can't really see. I mean, that's that's what's cool about live music, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. But um, ultimately, I think people are always going to show up. Mm-hmm. I just want people to show up safely. Right. I just want people to show up with a certain kind of respect for the reality of the situation. Yeah. Because what seems odd to me is like in November of last year, if, you know, you were feeling under the weather with a cold and somebody called and said, Hey, you know, we're going to go and see such and such play. And then we're going to go and have dinner afterward. You'd be like, you know what? Feeling a little bit under the weather. I should stay home. Mm-hmm. But now it's just like, fuck yeah, let's go. <laughs> it's just, you know, cause it, we're starved. Well, I, 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 we're starved certainly, but we're starved for a couple of different things. Um, I think we're starved not only for the outlet that music offers or that a museum offers or whatever, but I think even more fundamentally than that, we're starved for kind of a sense of the reality of all of it Mm -hmm. because we don't have a clear fix. Right. Right. Everything is still... yeah, it's still like, so uncertain. Information, yeah, if the information is changing, you know, every day, you're just like, well, we're. I don't know how to react to this, mm-hmm. and if I don't know how to react to it, then I can't make a good decision. Right. If I can't make a good decision, is that gonna is that gonna adversely affect me? Is that gonna adversely affect you know someone I care about? Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's, there's just, there's a lot, there's a lot to process that we've never had to process before in terms of the the decision to say yes or no to a gig. Mm -hmm. Like usually yes or no is just like, ah, I'd rather go and hang out and, you know, catch a movie and dinner with my wife as opposed to, you know, making 50 bucks, you know, for something that's going to probably frustrate me at least on a certain level (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know exactly what you mean and in you know in terms of the crowd that shows up you know i'm i'm realizing i i'm i'm very like glasses half empty um about a lot of this um but it's it's a little bit you know damned if you do and damned if you don't because so you know the idea of playing for a very sparse social distanced masked crowd doesn't hold a lot of excitement for me. On the other hand, playing for a packed, you know, playing for a packed house is, is fuck no (laughs) right now. You know, that that would probably cause me more stress and, and, uh, worry and anxiety than, you know, the, the sparse crowd. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it almost seems at times like I think that one of the things that all of this has done is it really has 
perhaps made people reassess, you know, what, what is it about this particular thing that is important to me? Right. You know, I, I think that that kind of, there, there's a broader kind of what is important to me in general that I think winds up coming up in a situation like this as well. But, you know, what is it about this that is important to me? Because there, taking into consideration the fact that, you know, perhaps there is an inherent laziness that, that we sometimes have mm-hmm. um, with regard to the instrument, with regard to the time that we're putting into the instrument um, and, you know, everything else associated with it. What does the art form actually mean to me now? Like, have I relied on music now more than I relied on it in the past? Or is it the same or is it less? What mm-hmm. does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, because in the absence of the kind of human connectivity that we have when we're on a gig or on a session, um, or going to see friends play, or whatever it happens to be. Now it's by Zoom calls and you know telephone calls and reaching out and having a very very um, a very tightened sphere. Mm-hmm. So how do you you know how how do the arts bridge that gap between what I was getting before? March the 10th, and now. Here's an example of our friend Mark Beckett on a track using the 6.5 by 14 buyer snare drum. Let's take something that's in four and then let's shift things around so that it doesn't seem like it's in four. Mm-hmm. Like, where can we drop accents and so it just, you don't know where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of newer artists are doing that kind of thing. Kneebody did it and still does it. Right. Um, Tim LaFave, Wayne, Wayne Krantz, that kind of thing. Wayne Krantz, yeah. And then even thinking about, uh, and I, why can't I think of... Uh, what is Dave King's... Oh, uh, yeah. The, um, bad Plus. Bad, oh, God. I feel so <laughs> horrible for, for having a brain fart. You know, so all these different groups are doing that metric modulation thing. And so now that's kind of become the thing Mm -hmm. and seeing how different people exploit that particular tool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you're, you're gravitating towards that kind of thing in this, in this time, because I think I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. I do not want to have to think hard at all when I listen to music these days. Um, because my, there's something really meditative about it though. Is there, I, I think that I, I really think there is because there's a point where I just stop worrying about it. Mm. That's well, that's the so, difference between you and me. I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I do that a lot, but then there's a point where I'm just, oh, nah, I'll figure it out later. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll worry about it later because, 
I want to feel engaged, Mm -hmm. but I'll pick that level of engagement. Mm -hmm. So if I want to really sit down and focus on what it is that's being done, I'll do that. But if I just want that to kind of be, you know, perhaps the most curious background, you know, kind of thing that you could possibly imagine. It's kind of like listening to Mashuga for, mm-hmm. you know, you know, ha- having Mashuga in, in the background or, and just like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's in four. Okay, cool. And then just whatever. I'll right. figure it out later. Right, right. Uh, well, that's another difference between you and me is because like you, you want to feel engaged on some level, whereas I think I want to feel comforted by listening to music. Um, and if, if, if I feel like music is sort of like batting me around a little bit, I'm like, I, I can't handle you right now. <laughs> I just want to be comforted yeah, I, and I, reassured and, <laughs> you know. Well, I think I do want to be engaged because um, I know myself well enough to know that if I don't engage myself in some way, you know, then I'll just uh, I can go dark pretty quickly. Yeah. So, and that's owing to, you know, there's, you know, in kind of, in my journey since I moved to Los Angeles, what I was able to determine was, you know, I've kind of got a low grade chronic depression kind of manifest itself as melancholy, mm-hmm. which anybody who, who knows me, everybody, anybody who's listening to this is like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so that, that engagement in whatever the art form happens, art form happens to be, what it does is it, it'll, it allows for a focus. Mm-hmm. And sure. by allowing for a focus, I think what it does is um, it's just kind of easier to deal with whatever it is that you have in front of you. Right, right. If you're engaged in that way. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's the difference between sort of like grappling with something, reckoning with it versus uh, avoidance behavior. And I'm <laughs> super prone to avoidance behavior, which I think is, is one of the reasons why I just want to be comforted by music right now. Um, because yeah. shit is so stressful. There's so many moving parts. Um, you know, the world is so crazy and so small at the same time. And I just, I'm kind of using music as, as, a, a positive escape rather than a vehicle to sort of, um, you know, like I said, grapple with this stuff. Um, and it's, it's funny you mentioned sort of this, this low grade depression or this, this melancholy, because, um, you don't seem like, uh, an LA drummer. And what I mean by that, (laughs) what I mean by that is like a lot of the drummers that I knew in LA. And I think a lot of the musicians in general, like since I've left LA, you know, people have asked me about it and, and, I figured out that if you're a musician in LA, if you're an extrovert with a short attention span, you're going to do great. (laughs) (laughs) And, and you, you and I, you and I are neither. Um, And, you know, it's, it's kind of one of the reasons that, that I was 
sort of relieved to to leave LA is because it's like okay I don't I don't have to try to do this thing anymore and not that it's a bad thing it's just it's it's a, a different personality type that I think thrives in that kind of environment so you know what what are what are some of the ways in which your personality or your sort of psychological tendencies have bumped up against uh you know the LA um zeitgeist or the you know just sort of the the vibe of how <laughs> the la music scene works well um <laughs> i think what wound up happening was i got burned enough times early on because it was pretty clear that i kind of wore my heart on my sleeve yeah. and i had decided on a I decided on a particular like aesthetic mm -hmm. if you will you know so I'm playing small kick drums playing 18s and 20s I don't care don't care what it looks like on stage mm -hmm. um, cymbals are low don't care what it looks like on stage I'm not interested in putting on a show. Right. I'm interested in making music. Um, and, you know, after you get burned, the number of times that you get burned, um, you start being able to make slightly better choices in terms of the people that you start working with. Or your name starts getting around as someone who is, you know, doing this particular thing. They have this particular aesthetic and it is something that, is going to work for the music. Right. And so I don't find myself, I don't find myself butting up too much against the, the, the artifice of it. Mm -hmm. um, and when I do, it's really, e it's easy. It's easy to hang with an extrovert. Because you don't have to do any talking. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm perfectly content to active listen, you know, in a room full of extroverts. Mm -hmm. And I am actively listening. I'm not blowing you off. Right. I'm actively listening. I'm actually, I'm actually paying attention to what it is that you have to say. Um, but the onus to respond or to interact isn't necessary. I can if I want to, but it isn't necessary. Right. And in terms of like uh, choosing, in terms of choosing an aesthetic, um, you're reminding me of, of uh, something Brendan Buckley said when I interviewed him, we were talking about, you know, the, the LA sort of image conscious thing and um, putting on a show and et cetera. And, and Brendan made the point that like, you don't have to conform to a certain thing to succeed in a place like LA. You just have to be a certain thing. He was like, you could, but you could be the guy that dresses like a pirate, <laughs> but that's, that's a choice. Right. And, yeah. and you'll become known as like the drummer that dresses like a pirate. You're not conforming to anything, but you're making a conscious choice about what you're going to be, how you're going to present yourself. And I think that's maybe the reason that I, um, struggled a bit in LA is because I didn't like, I wanted to do this, that, and the other, you know, I wanted to, um, 
sort of float around in these different scenes and different genres. And I think it's harder to do that in a place like LA than, than other places like Atlanta or Kansas city or other places I've lived. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, the, the fact that you're an introvert, the fact that you're soft spoken, the fact that you kind of wear your heart on your sleeve, um, played into the aesthetic that you, um, and it's not like you chose it cynically, like you knew yourself. You're like, this is who I am. This is how I play. And I'm going to yeah. le- lean into that and become known for that. Um, rather than try to play this game of like, oh, I'm going to be this guy this day with the three rack toms and the high cymbals. And I'm going to be this other guy the next day with the 18 inch kick and the low cymbals and the, you know, um, you just kind of had a stronger sense of yourself, I think, than, than I did. Well, you know, that's interesting because I don't, I don't necessarily feel that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily feel as if I have a strong or as strong a sense of self as I could. Um, you know, the first time that we talked, you know, the the word transparency kept on coming up hmm. a lot uh, in, in terms of kind of my playing and kind of my aesthetic and all that stuff. I don't want you to know that it's me. Right. But I... I, I want I want you to feel good about it. I want you to feel good by it. I want you to feel lifted in some way by it. I yeah. want what I do to kind of help the whole. Mm-hmm. And I guess I've gotten to a point where I'm okay being in the back. Yeah. I'm really, really okay being in the back. And, um, and you're okay. You're, you're okay being sort of anonymous. I remember when I did, um, the uh, the article on you for for drummers resource you you use the term uh, invisible signature you're like I don't I don't need people to know it's me I yeah. just I just need it like, to be good <laughs> yeah I mean it's you know I think about you know I think about people that have a very very signature sound mm-hmm. um, a lot of that comes with the way that they hit the drums but a lot of it like you know when it's Steve Jordan you know when it's Stuart Copeland it's but i don't necessarily want that signature still i still don't want it Mm -hmm. um that's why i've got you know 40 some odd cases behind me in the closet of like snare drums and all that stuff it's just it's like well here are here are these different tools that i have what tool do I need in order to be able to make this thing happen today mm-hmm. or this thing happen tomorrow or whatever it is. So um, it's still more the art form itself that I get off on yeah. as opposed to trying to shoehorn myself into it. Yeah, And, you know, you mentioned Brendan a little earlier ago, who I'm very, very honored to be able to call a friend, but you want to talk about a guy that is able to transform Mm -hmm. into so many different things. I mean, when he was playing with pedestrian, which is still my favorite band, you know, in LA, I think, um, you know, he was able to do that very, very poignant kind of death cab for cutie ish type songwriter thing. But then you see him on stage with Shakira 
He's an where animal. it's literally eight eight trillion people in the audience right. and he's got flash bombs going off behind him and he's like total rock star. Right. And then he goes to China and does, you know, all this stuff for these huge, huge Chinese artists. And again, just as big, if not bigger than Shakira, you just never hear about them because they're, you know, half a world away. Right. And then he comes home and hangs out and, you know, puts a picture up on Facebook. It's like, it's, you know, it's changing the heads on my bass drums and, you know, and, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of maintenance. It's just, there's no, there's no fakery at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what I strive for. Mm -hmm. You know, I strive for being able to play the widest breadth of music that I possibly can and experience that as, as deeply as I can. But then, you know, okay, I just got home from this gigantic tour or whatever. I I really need to go and get a flat white and sit down and hang out at, you know, my local coffee shop. Right. Go to the you beach, know, go to the beach with a wife and kid. Yeah, you know, you know, uh, you know anything like that. Just Now um, that you mention it, like that is one thing I really appreciate about Brendan and others like him is that you know, we talk a lot about social media and you know, nothing bores me faster than a social media feed that is dozens and dozens or if not hundreds of videos of like the same drum set, the same shot, the same room, just like over and over and over slightly below that is an Instagram account. That's just all drums, all music all the time. Um, yeah. but Brendan, like you said, it's just like, this is, this is me. You know, one day I'm in China, another day I'm at a club in Hollywood, another day I'm not doing anything, I'm hanging with my family. It's like, it doesn't, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, um, there, there is no signature look or signature filter or signature sound, um, either, no. either in his career or in his social media presence. Yeah. And there, that's, that's really the beautiful thing of it. You know, you, you're known for being you. Right. I mean, if you're able to, if you're able to be known for being you, it's hard to beat. Yep. It's really, really hard to beat if you can get there. And Brendan's one of those guys that got there. I think that Davey is another guy who, you know, you know, you know who Davey Village is, mm -hmm. you know, as an educator, as a drummer, as a, you know, of, you know, almost an iconoclast because he's got the whole art thing going on as well. I mean, his his approach is so holistic and it brings in so many different elements that once you experience that, it's like, oh, okay. Right. Like I understand a little bit better who this person is. Like right. I understand who Brendan is, but I'm not being hit over the head with it. Mm -hmm. Like, I see the different threads of this person. I see the different threads that Dave Elitch is interested in. I see the different threads that Kevin Stevens is, is interested in. Yeah. You know, in the music that he plays and the way that he conducts his classes in just his enthusiasm for, for the art form itself. Right. So there are, there are uh, dozens of guys out here where if I'm feeling, you know, if I'm having a rough day, 
I'll think about them or maybe I'll reach out to them and be like, Hey, what's going on? And just, just checking in yeah, and just hearing their voice or seeing what it is that they're doing on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. It really, because really you, does. you know them, you know them for being them, right? It's not just they're playing. They're not, they're not one of these drummers. I can't tell you how many drummers I see. Some of them like very well known and they're amazing drummers, but I just have no sense of who they are. Absolutely none. I have no fucking mm-hmm. idea what kind of a guy Vinny Caliuta is. None. Well, I, I think that there is a very, very specific... I think that there are very specific reasons for that. Mm. You know, I think that there are certain players that really don't want you to know. Mm. And that could be because of... Um, like, I'm an introvert but I know I need to play the game. Right. So I'm going to play the game to the degree that I do. But, you know, unlike you or me or, you know, any one of a number of people I could mention, you know, a guy like Vinny Caliuta or Dave Weckl or Matt Chamberlain or Jim Keltner or Jay Bellarose or whatever, they've got targets on their back Hmm. because people are gunning for them and their thing and their sound and their this and their that, as opposed to just being them. Right. You know, I think you and I could probably both agree that when we were coming up and starting to play and listening and really, really dissecting everything. Yeah. I wanted to steal every single one of Vinny's licks or Weckl's licks or Steve Jordan's licks or whoever it happens to be. But then there's a point where he's like, no, I'm, it's difficult enough to be me, man. I'm just going to try to be the best me as possible. And if some of those things sneak into my playing, well, that's cool. Right. But I'm not going to go and steal anybody's licks. They're not their licks. Right. I mean, you want to listen to it. Then, I mean, if you want to steal Vinny's licks, then you need to listen to Tony Williams. And if you listen to Tony Williams, you need to listen to Philly Joe. And if you listen to Philly Joe, you need to, you know, listen to Chick Webb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if you're going to steal, well, you better get a really, really big music library yeah. and sit down in a comfy chair because you've got a lot of listening to do. Yeah. And that's the thing people are looking at this kind of stuff in isolation. And in looking at those really amazing musical moments in isolation, I think what that winds up doing is that winds up isolating the person who did the stuff in the first place. Right. Because what everybody is worried about is stealing this or taking that or doing this thing or, you know, as opposed to appreciating kind of the the totality of what's being done. Right. It's like, so I think that's why go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I, I think that's why someone like Vinny Caliuta or Dave Weckl or Steve Jordan, or they, it, they almost appear to have like a chip on their shoulder or something, mm-hmm. or they're very, very, very guarded because they don't want to have, you know, if they don't know, they don't remember what freaking snare drum they used on this session from 27 years ago. Right. It, they don't care. Yeah. It's like, this is the, it, it was there. It sounded right for the track. That's what I used. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to remember that mm-hmm. necessarily. And it, it, you're not connecting with a person 
on a human level. Mm -hmm. You're connecting with them or attempting to connect them, connect to them on some almost, you know, demigod yeah. level. Yeah. And I, I could imagine that being incredibly tiring for, for someone after a while. I certainly wouldn't want it. Right. Right. It's like, let's just, can we talk about anything other than drums? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned Weckl. I, I interviewed him uh, a few months ago. Um, and I was like, I was freaked out about it cause I knew nothing about him. Um, and was wondering like if, you know, we were going to be able to connect. Um, but he was, he was totally cool. Like just because, and you know, I use Vinny as like, I, I kind of said like, I have no idea what kind of Vinny, what kind of guy Vinny is. And I kind of said it like, that's a bad thing. Like he should be more outgoing or he should whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, Dave Weckl was totally cool. There was no chip on his shoulder whatsoever. And just because he appears guarded or uh, appears to have, um, like you said, a, a chip on his shoulder or whatever, he actually talked about that. He was like, um, you know, especially on the bandstand, like, I'm concentrating. Like, I'm here to do a thing. It, like, I want it to be fun. Obviously, it is fun. But, but it's a high level. Right. It's an incredibly high level. I'm taking this shit seriously. Like, I'm not here yeah. to have a party. Um, and I think it's, it's you know, part of some of what, like, athletes go through, some of what some actors go through. Um, it's like, I, just look at look at the work. I'm, I did not sign up to be um, a, a role model or a hero to anybody. I'm trying to do what I do the best I can. Yeah. And I think in, 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 in talking about someone like, you know, Dave Weckl, you know, he got so slagged for so long. Um, like he became like the golden boy and then literally it was just, you know, the butt of jokes right? for, for a very, very long time. And that's not fair. I mean, there's, that's that's that fickle kind of quality that creatives sometimes have. It's like you know, you know, we're we're very adept at putting people on pedestals and then blowing the pedestals up. You of know? course, yeah. And and that's you know that's not fair because <clears throat> it's not that it. it I mean, I don't think you can't say that Dave Weckl isn't an amazing drummer. Yeah. You just can't say it. No, one of the greatest. You may not like you you may not like the music, but you can't say that he is a bad drummer. He is a peerless drummer. Yeah. And, you know, even more so now than that first and I'm not even going to use the electric band because I think that's one of the that's one of the reasons why he started getting slagged on the way that he did. But if you listen to any of the stuff where when he was playing with, you know, when he did the Simon and Garfunkel stuff, because people forget that he played, you know, on that you know last you know one of the last tours with Simon and Garfunkel. Mm -hmm. um, that first Bill Connors album, Step It. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. Every single note I memorized, I obsessed over that album because it was so fresh and so new and the playing was so crisp. And mm -hmm. I was like, 
what in the hell is he? T- Does he have a double bass drum pedal? <laughs> no, it's oh no, it's a left, it's a left hand floor tom. What the hell is going on? Right, right. And you know, and just seeing him play, you know, playing, seeing him, seeing him, hearing him play straight ahead. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my what god, a, dude! What his the hell last, is, what his the hell last project. Not do? There's, there's a, there's a. <laughs> I forgot the name of his last record, um, but we we talked about it. Like his latest project is like an acoustic quartet. And he's still playing the big Dave Weckl drum set. Like he's still Dave Weckl, but he's playing straight ahead and it is so fucking burning. Just yeah. like, it's not the Chick Corea electric band. It's like, it's straight ahead, like post bop murderous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned, you, you talked about like, you know, putting people on a pedestal and then blowing them up. I think it, it happens in, it happens in sports. It happens in the entertainment industry. It happens in music. What Mark Marin refers to as the online army of unfuckable hate nerds is going to take shots at whoever <laughs> is, is at the top. And the biggest reason is because, and I'm really, ugh, I hate this. And, and I'll go back to Vinny. Vinny is, Vinny is my Tony Williams. Hmm. You know, Tony Williams was his Tony Williams. Vinny is my Tony Williams. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet him once. Mm-hmm. And it was under, you know, very, very difficult circumstances for both of us because it was the loss of a mutual friend. Hmm. Um, but just because I love Vinny's playing the way that I do, just because I love Matt Chamberlain's playing the way that I do or Jim Keltner's, they don't owe me anything right and here's the thing if you're a fan of hussein bolt or serena williams or vinnie caliuta or michael phelps or whomever the hell it happens to be they don't owe you a damn thing they're doing their thing you get off on it that's great they don't owe you anything beyond that right if you buy you know i i, I don't know if you if if you buy the you know Steph Curry jersey he doesn't owe you anything right he owes you nothing and that's what people I think that's why people blow up you know you know kill your idol yeah you know you know and it's funny that's that's what Buddha said mm-hmm. you know kill your idol um, but instead of using that phrase in order to find yourself and to kind of elevate yourself, you know, we kind of reduce it to the lowest common denominator. Like, let's just destroy. So that's why a guy like Michael gets, you know, slagged as much as he did. Yeah. You know, that's why, you know, the, you know, that's why you've got paparazzi taking pictures of, you know, Robert Downey Jr. or Brad Pitt or asking them inane questions right. about whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't know, man. It's, <laughs> we're dumb. Sometimes we, sometimes Obviously. we really, really have an amazing capability of just sheer stupidity. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I think and we're, we don't, we're all we don't guilty value, of it. We're, we're, sorry, oh, go yeah. ahead. No, no, I, I think, I think the, the, the things that we value 
or the things that we have wound up placing value in and the expectations that we have in those things of value, mm-hmm. it's all ephemeral. It's not going to last. Right. I mean, if you, if you are able to figure out how to hitch your horse to something that's going to last, you're going to be so much better off. Mm-hmm. And when you do, when you do that, what you realize is, it's not necessarily the people that are that are doing the work, though that is important. It's the it, it's the work, right? It's the music, ultimately, or it's the piece of art, or it, it, that's what's bringing you a certain moment of solace or a certain moment of happiness. Mm-hmm. And it's all those pieces together. And I think that's what we're all faced with now is like, what, what are those pieces made of? Because we no longer have, um, you know, sort of the, the distraction or the artifice of this out and about gigging, uh, lifestyle. Um, and I, I think my, you know, for myself included that busyness often, um, replaced or displaced, um, you know, our, our pursuit of what we actually care about when it comes to music. Um, Mm -hmm. because we were getting like a little bit of juice, um, a little bit of adrenaline or something, which is, you know, not Mm -hmm. a bad thing in and of itself, but it kind of like, you know, it distracted us from what do I really get out of music and how do I get that thing? (laughs) You know, because playing a live gig for a bunch of people can give you a bunch of adrenaline. Um, but if you really sit down and think about it, is adrenaline what you want to get out of music? And if not, um, what, what is it that you want to get out of music and how do you get that? Because playing in front of a live crowd will get you adrenaline. But if that's not what you ultimately want, can you get what you ultimately want sitting in your room? Yeah. Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, can you get what you ultimately want, uh, playing with, you know, this type of thing and not that type of thing? Um, so yeah, it's, it's something that we're all like right now, I'm just kind of in love with the sound of drums, like, uh, you know, figuring out mic placement and being like, Oh, holy shit, I can get that sound before it even hits the box. Like, uh, like that's, what's turning me on right now, you know? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's. It's an opportunity to kind of reassess, mm-hmm. you know, what's important. And what's going to be interesting is, you know, on the other side of all of this, do people revert back or are people going to kind of take whatever lessons or aha moments and run with them? Mm-hmm. That's going to be the interesting question. That is the interesting question. And I think the longer this goes on, I think the more likely it is that a lot of people are actually going to change their approach and that a lot of things are actually going to change. I think if, if things, if things get back to quote unquote normal fairly quickly, then we are going to go back to normal. Um, but I think the longer people are forced to just sit with this and sit through this, the more, um, people are going to figure out, you know, 
they're going to meet themselves. Like what, what do I really want? How do I really get it? Yeah. And it's weird. It's weird having that meeting it, it, because <laughs> I, I, cause I, because I know I have. Yeah. And I'm just like, Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's assumptions shattered. <laughs> oh, I thank heavens for it. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. Because I don't think it's fair. It's not fair for you to live under assumptions of what you need or should be. And it's not fair to mirror those assumptions on anybody else. rehearsal space you you've seen the rehearsal space yeah um i had the opportunity to take over the responsibilities of on-site managing that whole facility oh cool all six buildings yeah um the the other guy who was doing it before his name is troy ziegler he's a great drummer and great guitar player and teaches at mccabe's and just he's he's an amazing amazing talent He's part of uh, Mark Giuliana's uh, beat music. Oh, yeah, the yellow sweatsuit guys? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, Troy was like, hey, I think you'd be a good fit for this. I want to recommend you, blah, 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 blah. You mm -hmm. go through, you know, whatever meetings and everything you go through. So I've been doing that since March. So uh, that's been incredibly helpful. But again, it's the... the the thing about it is you need to have a diverse, you need to have a diversified portfolio yeah, basically now more than ever, you know, what skills, what skills do you have that are going to allow you to do whatever it is that you need to do? Because mm -hmm. I, I never subscribed to the starving artist thing. Yeah. Never did. Yeah. Because I always felt like, well, I think the art's going to wind up suffering if I'm starving or if I'm living in my car. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that I've never experienced either one of those things. Right. I, I hope I don't. But, you know, I wanted to know that there was at least something coming in that allowed me to still be able to focus on music mm -hmm. and not start taking things out of desperation. Sure. Because if you start taking things out of desperation, I think that's really where you begin to suffer as a person and as an artist. Right. And even if you're not desperate, if, if you're just sort of, if your um, default position is like, yes, I'll do the gig that, like you said, can lead to a lot of 
frustrating situations. Not necessarily, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a, you know, death by a thousand cuts. It's not that like you're down to your last 20 bucks and you need this $40 gig and it's five hours long in a hundred degree. Like it's not that, but it's just kind yeah. of a series of like, this is what I do. I have to do it. I don't do anything else. Um, and some gigs are going to be fun and some of them are going to suck. Um, and we all deal with that to a certain extent, but like you said, having a little bit more diversification takes the pressure off drumming and therefore leads to less resentment. I think there's so much resentment that can be built up in oneself if, if one is not careful, you know, you, you think it's a point of pride to say like, I, uh, you know, 100% of my living comes from performing, um, and that's awesome. But if, uh, you know, 60% of your experience is stressful or frustrating or boring or, <laughs> you know, that can, that can be cancerous uh, yeah. in terms of your attitude towards it. Yeah. I mean, I, I literally had, I, I remember this very distinctly. I remember a friend of mine who, you know, really kind of had the temerity just say that, you know, if you're doing something other than just music, you're not a professional musician. Mm. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I've been playing in your band for a number of years, so I'm not a professional musician. Got it. Right. Okay. Right. And it was just something... It was it was something that just shocked me in a way when I first heard that that that, that kind of headspace actually exists because as we both know, as anybody listening to this knows, um, you're not playing eight hours a day mm-hmm. most most of the time. I mean, it, this isn't looked at as a regular full time job because it's very much broken up and scattered across, you know, an entire 24 hour or 80 hour or hundred hour period, whatever it happens to be. Um, and just because you're not making a widget or just because, just because you're having to make a widget rather, you know, here or there, right. Doesn't make you less of an artist. Doesn't make you less of a professional. Right. It simply means that, you understand the economics of the situation perhaps a little bit better than other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are and therefore, you're going to bring a, you're going to bring a purer spirit and a better attitude to the music. I mean, one hopes. Yeah. One hopes. Yeah. Like yeah. if I actually had enough time and money to be able to go and, you know, have a bite to eat and grab a nice tea before I go to this rehearsal or this gig, well, I'm certainly going to be a lot. I'm going to be well fed. I'm going to be well hydrated. I'm going to be happy because I'm not running around doing 8 million things beforehand and being very flustered and scatterbrained and, you know, foggy because I wasn't able to eat. I just, I mean, it's, yeah. I, I, I kind of bristle at the notion that you can only do this thing. Right. Right. And I think and if you, you if, both of us, both of us would welcome the opportunity to, um, you know, like have Brendan Buckley's life, 
<laughs> you know, where you have a diverse well, a diverse range of projects. They're all high quality. You make your living playing. That's it. Um, but that you know that just doesn't happen for most of us. Well, the thing that I kind of think about is in most in most instances, and not completely, but in most instances, you have a partner in that particular journey, Mm -hmm. whether you're married, whether it's a life partner, whatever it happens to be, there's somebody that is able to kind of make up the slack so that in the end, end it's 50-50. Right. Ultimately, you know, it's a partnership. In the end, it's 50-50. Now, if you don't have that especially in a place like LA, mm-hmm. that makes things very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where I worry most about some of my friends that are, you know, aren't good with money, <laughs> are alone. Yeah. Um, and don't have uh, a broad enough set of skills to be able to do different things mm-hmm. in order to take up the slack yeah you know i worry about it I mean, hell i worry about it for myself a lot because mm-hmm. you know rachel's not working anymore right because you can't because you can't mm-hmm. so it's like all right what do i need to do in order to make sure the lights stay on comfortable can you talk about the the health challenges that your wife has faced and how that has affected both like the business end of your music career but also just kind of how you approach music and how you value it well i mean most of most of my friends are at least vaguely aware but um my wife has had a brain cancer diagnosis since 2013. Yeah. So like most, most of the time I've known you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and we were, we got married in 2007. Mm -hmm. So half of the time that we have been together, she's been, you know, dealing with and living with this particular diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So that changed things dramatically as time progressed because uh, in this particular instance, it manifested itself in a certain cognitive decline, certain dexterity declines and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you've got bills to pay and you've got things that you have to take care of. So, all right, how do I, 
how do I make this all work? And fortunately, she's got, you know, her mom is here in town, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of co-caregiving going on. And so having those additional skills have been really, really a, a, a godsend. Mm-hmm. Because I am able to perhaps burn the candle at both ends with a blowtorch <laughs> and be able to make everything work right uh, to the degree that I can. Um, now, there's always a flip side. Now, the flip side of that certainly is um, at the end of the day, you're pretty maxed out. Yeah. So there's stuff that I would love to be doing on the engineering and recording and you know just even just woodshedding side of things right that i'm not able to 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 the same degree that i could um but you know fortunately she's stable right and so you know kind of you go from there and then you move forward with each day mm-hmm. but the way that uh, I mean, I think that my relationship to music is, I guess, sometimes it feels more of an escape Mm -hmm. than it may have previously. Yeah. Because, you know, I can get lost in it if I just need, if I need to decompress, I can just put something on and I can just like, not thinking about anything for the next 45 minutes. Right. Um, or it allows me to, you know, like we talked about earlier, to engage in it in such a way where my mind is simply taken elsewhere Yeah. in a very, very, you know, kind of like analytical way to, uh, you know, to again, just, just to be elsewhere mm-hmm. for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the challenges are, you know, are myriad, yeah. certainly. Yeah. And, I mean, they're not going to get any less challenging. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the it, um, I'm constantly trying to figure out how can I be the best version of myself for for her, for my mother-in-law, yeah, for the rest of my family, and for all of my friends. Right. Um, and I think that leads to um, decisions about um, you know diversification. Like, how can I set myself up? to be the healthiest and happiest that I can be like when, when you um, live for and with someone else and have a partner in that way. um, It certainly did that for me. I was like, you know, if I'm, if I'm fucking broke and cranky, then I am not going to (laughs) be, I'm not going to be a good husband (laughs) to be around. Um, So it was, you know, part of that desire to be my best self for her. Um, led to sort of diversifying my income and letting go of this notion of being a full-time player. Um, 
And uh, like you said, just like doing what you need to do, um, giving yourself the freedom financially and otherwise to be able to just take care of yourself a little bit. So, you know, that, that did it for me and my wife does not have cancer. So I can only imagine the perspective that came for you, um, in that regard when you, you know, you, you said, I have to, uh, do everything I can to just be secure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you definitely, (laughs) it, it definitely, you know, you grow up real quick. Yeah. I mean, you, you think you think you're growing up beforehand, and then something like that happened. And you're like, oh, right. Yeah. Um, and it certainly isn't anything that you expect. Right. But and we all say that, like, you know, music is so important to us. But those of us who have a partner in that way, like that partner, is the most important person. Um, and we don't often have to um, prove it, <laughs> you know, because our partners often give us the leeway to put music first sometimes and they sign up for that and they're like, this is, this is the business we have chosen. But then when, when like real life shit barges in on it, you have to pony up. Yeah, you definitely do. And, um, I think I fail pretty much every day. (laughs) And I'm being, I'm being completely honest. I mean, I, I, I think I fail pretty much every day, but you know, it's worth getting up in the morning and, you know, and trying again. Right. Um, so there's nothing, there's nothing easy about it, but I also understand that I'm like the second or third layer of the onion after, after Rachel. Mm -hmm. So, my perspective is only that as uh, of a caregiver. Mm -hmm. So I don't have it as difficult as she does, obviously, because I don't have the diagnosis. Right. Um, And I'm not going to, it's not a me thing. I'm trying to do what I can in order to be the, the best caregiver that I can. Yeah. But I don't ask the question why. Because why why is a good journalism question? Right. Mm-hmm. Why is not necessarily a good question in a situation like this? Because what it winds up doing, in my opinion, is it victimizes the person who's asking it. Mm. And that's the wrong focus. Why isn't the correct question? The correct question is what now? Mm. Yeah. Because when you ask what now, you're being a bit more active in the way that you're viewing the situation. Yeah. And that's what action is what's needed. Right. Not, you know, pontification. Not reasons. Yeah. Because the reasons that are given are not reasons because you can't answer. Why did this person get cancer? Sometimes you can you know, you're a lifelong smoker and this and that and the other thing, blah, 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 blah. Right. Then, then, yeah, sure, maybe you have mitigating factors that have, you know, put you at a higher risk. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Rachel's family biography is such that they don't really know the full extent of what, uh, 
what or who may have been ill or not, because most of the family was lost in the Holocaust. Wow. So they don't have a full accounting of, well, who had this or who had that or who had, you know. Yeah. So, you know, it's just this, it's a random mutation that can happen to anybody. Unfortunately, it happened to my wife. Right. So what but now? Again, so what now? And what now is, you know, trying to be as educated as you can about the situation mm-hmm. and asking as many questions as you feel you need to and not worrying too much if the medical team gets annoyed with your questions. <laughs> um, though they don't. They're, yeah. they're, they're really they're quite good over there at Cedars. Um, but then you really have to kind of check yourself because even when we're healthy, there are times where we are not ourselves, Yeah, you know, where we haven't eaten a good breakfast or, you know, we're hungover or, you know, didn't get enough sleep and we're just, just awful to be around. Yeah. Now that's you healthy. (laughs) If you're sick, like, I mean, the, the age old thing, you know, the worst person to have to deal with when they're sick is a man because they turn into a child. Yeah. Um, now in Rachel's situation, there are times where she gets very, very frustrated and very angry because certain of her capabilities have, you know, have been decreased. Mm-hmm. So things are harder. I can't get angry with her for being angry about the fact that she can't do something that she used to be able to do in the same way. I simply have to sit there and be like, it's, it's cool. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. The time that you need, it's, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's okay. And, um, I think these concepts, like so, what you're talking about is, is patience, acceptance, and what now? And, you have had to deal with these things in, in a really, you know, visceral way. Um, but they're, they're good lessons for all of us, you know, just in whatever challenges life throws at us, but specifically in music. Like if you approach, if you approach your music career with some patience and acceptance and not why, but what now, um, I think that's a, a much healthier, uh, if not more effective way to, to go about it. It absolutely is. And everybody that I know and that I respect in our community, they, they seem to do that, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about, you know, the Blair Sintas and the Brendan Buckley's and the Luke Adams's and the Kevin Stevens's and the, you know, Dave Elich's and, you know, just on down the line. Um, uh, my buddy Craig McIntyre, who is up in Portland now, um, you know, we talk every week and it's just, it's always kind of like, okay, what now? Mm-hmm. You know, how about this? How about that? And, you know, and having to be patient and having to kind of accept the situation as it comes and in the end, then you move on from there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there are life lessons that you hope you have at, you know, a particular point in your life. But if you don't and they make themselves known to you, (laughs) 
Boy, howdy. I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's hard, hard not to know, listen at that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when, you know, when, when the knock on the door is basically a howitzer, mm. you're like, oh, right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I understand now. I'm right. on board. Got it. Message received. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for talking about that, man. It's, um, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about the various ways that, um, you know, real life can, can intrude or, or impede on your music career. Um, and you know, this is, this is not a podcast where we get heavy into, um, you know, how to tune your drums or <laughs> how to, yeah. how to play left foot clave. Like we're, yeah. we're, we're really more about, you know, the, um, the psychological and emotional and practical journey of like, you know, leading a life in music. And, uh, I would imagine that, that more of us than not, um, have to deal with something akin to what you've been dealing with at some point. Um, and, uh, I, I just really appreciate you, uh, opening up about how you've navigated it. Um, and, uh, the, the lessons that hopefully the rest of us can, can take from your experience. Well, thanks, man. I mean, it's, it, it, it is a little bit odd sometimes because it's something that has been part of my existence now for so long that, you know, you kind of forget who knows, who doesn't know. Right. And then I feel bad sometimes when in conversation, it just kind of comes up and the other person is just like, Oh, Oh, uh, 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 uh. because a lot of people don't know how to deal with a diagnosis like that. Mm -hmm. People don't know how to deal with, um, the, the impermanence of, of life basically. Right. You know, we're only here for a very finite time. So again, you can spend that time asking why and being angry about things, mm -hmm. or you can ask the question, okay, what now? And, you know, exhibit as much patience as possible and be as understanding as possible and show as much empathy as you can. And hopefully, you know, do some good. Right. You know, even if not doing good is making somebody happy because of the stuff that you played on a particular album. Right. Or making somebody feel like they can get through their next week because of the show that they saw you play, you know, on Saturday night. Right. Um, or also I find like, uh, this is something I struggle with and, and I'm getting better at it. I feel like just extending empathy, especially on the gig. If you have a colleague who is being a pain in the ass, or if it's somebody you've never played with before and you're not like hooking up with them, uh, either personally or musically or whatever, I try to remind myself, you have no fucking idea what is going on in this person's life. They might genuinely, yeah. they might genuinely be a dick. You know, <laughs> that's always a possibility. But, it's always a possibility, but, but you know, they I, could be going through whatever they're going through as well. So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, man, thanks. Thanks again for, for talking. We've, we've hit the two hour mark now. Um, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we win. 
Um, but man, it was it was great to see you again. Uh, I let's let's not let another uh, you know four and a half years go by before we uh, before we have another convo. Well, yeah, definitely not. And I'm glad that I reached out to wish you a happy birthday, and because it because you'd been you'd been on my mind anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this was this was a really nice and completely unexpected kind of outcome from you know saying happy birthday so i really appreciate the opportunity and i hope uh i hope i hope people get something out of it i'm sure they will i'm sure they will and uh wish wish you and rachel the best uh and we'll we'll thanks, talk man you too big thanks to christopher i enjoyed chopping it up with him once again hope you dug that too Follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up on what we're doing every week. You can keep in touch with us there, too. Don't hesitate to drop us a line. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and Spotify. And check us out at patreon.com slash working drummer. We appreciate your support there. Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with Mike Hansen, whose career has taken him from L.A. to Chicago, playing with George Lynch, Paul Gilbert, Hurricane, and many others. Hope you check that out, and until then, stay safe, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.